This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. The subversion of the Fourth Amendment of the Bill of Rights began with the beginning of the Republic, protecting against the unreasonable search and seizures by government and government's agents requires constant vigilance and an update to old ideas about what constitutes our papers and effects. Pulitzer Prize-winning author David Shipler is author of the new book, The Rights of the People. We spoke yesterday. When courts look at the word effects in the Fourth Amendment, what should they be thinking about? These days, they should be thinking about uh, every bit of personal, financial, medical information, whether it exists on paper or digitally. And that's where the courts have been way behind the technological revolution. They've always been behind, actually. You know, the Supreme Court ruled when uh, long-distance telephone came in that uh, wiretaps could be done without warrants uh, because the voices were carried outside your home and the Fourth Amendment applied only inside your home. It was the kind of the trespass theory of the Fourth Amendment. These days, of course, uh, you cannot function in a modern world without much of your personal information outside your home. And uh, the courts, uh, I think, have not come to terms with this. Neither has Congress. Uh, You know, there is a concept uh, in legal terms. uh, I'm not a lawyer, by the way, but I learned a lot about the law in doing this book, uh, The Rights of the People. And uh, the concept is the reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, To what extent does someone have a reasonable expectation of privacy over the financial transactions that he does, over the telephone numbers that he calls, over the email addresses he communicates with? And so far, the courts have ruled that there is no such expectation of privacy because the individual transfers that information to a third party, to a telecommunications company, to a bank. Uh, and I think that's a pretty outmoded uh, exist, uh, sort of way to, to look at uh, – I think that's a pretty outmoded way of looking at um, 21st century life. Some people draw a distinction between an expectation of privacy and the expectation of being able to control your privacy. And that, that seems to be a re, uh, an important distinction to be able to make. People aren't necessarily concerned about the stuff they share on Facebook or, uh, you know, the, your bank having financial data on you. But they are very concerned about making sure that data is secured somehow under their control. I think you're right, and that's an important distinction. It seems to me that people should have the right to control their information, whether they keep it in their desk drawers or whether they keep it uh, in a cloud online. So we need new laws to regulate that and to require the government to get warrants, proper warrants based on probable cause that evidence of a crime will be discovered in order to get access to that information. It may be that people, some people don't care. You know, some people will be fine with uh, everyone having access uh, to their information. A lot of people feel it's advantageous and efficient for private corporations to look at your web browsing activity and decide what advertisements are suitable for you, what your interests are and what they might tailor their advertising uh, to and and so forth. I mean, I think there's a certain convenience aspect to this. I mean, I I pay bills online because it's convenient. It's cheaper than putting a 44-cent stamp on an envelope. Uh, That doesn't mean that I 
want the government to see all of my activities online. I mean, I trade stocks and so forth, but that doesn't mean, and I'm, I'm prepared that my, for my broker to look uh, at my transactions and to be aware of the balances in my account and what I'm doing. But that the broker isn't the same as the FBI in my view. And therefore, people, individuals should have the right to uh, guard the privacy of their uh, information. You know, what I did in this book was to look at the spectrum of methods by which the government can intrude into your private affairs. That is to look at, uh, at, at issues that you're involved in to do searches under the Fourth Amendment. So I began with the traditional search, war search warrant. I spent time with the D.C. police uh, not far from where we're sitting in the middle of the night uh, with an undercover narcotics squad going on search warrants. Uh, where the activities are, are most visible, actually, in a way, because they can be challenged in court. Uh, they require an affidavit from a law enforcement uh, officer that uh, there is probable cause to believe that evidence of a crime will be found at a particular place, and that warrant has to be signed by a judge. So you have both two branches of government uh, checking one another, uh, and so that, that's, a, you know, that's the gold standard of the Fourth Amendment. Now, there are problems with the search warrant. There are shortcuts that are taken very often. There are um, untruths told by law enforcement officers in certain cases. But basically, that's the most protected uh, area of government surveillance or government searches. And the next step away from that, I spent time also with a, a gun unit in uh, D.C., uh, called the Power Shift, which operates in the middle of the night and does uh, pat-downs of pedestrians, searches of vehicles to try to get guns off of people. And there, uh, they do a lot of searches of innocent people, uh, 20 or 30 a night to get maybe one gun every two or three days. So those uh, are also controlled pretty closely by the Fourth Amendment. That is, you have to show that you have reasonable suspicion to believe someone is armed, or that you have consent by them to search you or to search your vehicle uh, to show that there's probable cause to do a warrantless search if you see some evidence of a crime in the car and that sort of thing. And that can be tested if some person is brought to court. Of course, most people are innocent, so they never get to court. Um, but then when you move away from the ordinary criminal process and the ordinary police work into counterterrorism, uh, and I describe this in some detail, you get less and less accountability by government and less and less visibility. So you have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants, which are secret affidavits authorized secretly by judges uh, and are usually aimed at uh, people who are suspected of uh, of being foreign agents or that agents of foreign powers, and that can include terrorist organizations. So these have been modified by the Patriot Act and relaxed uh, extensively uh, since 9-11, and they're used now quite broadly to cover not only counterterrorism but also ordinary crime when there's an international component. There's the National Security Letter which is an administrative warrant issued by the FBI. and That's much easier to get now than it used to be before the Patriot Act. Uh, that letter comes with a gag order. The recipient is not allowed to reveal the fact that he or she has, has been served with this uh, basic, basically a subpoena with no judicial oversight. 
And we know of a few cases. There are about 50,000 50, a year issued, but we know of a few because the recipients have actually resisted them. We know of two internet service providers and um, a group of libraries in Connecticut that received these letters. Nick Merrill, one of the people who received these national security letters I, I spoke with, uh, so one of the things that he mentioned that was was uh, should be chilling, I think, is that when he was given the national security letter, he asked the FBI agents at his door whether or not he was allowed to even speak to his own attorney on the subject, and they didn't give him a very a, much of an adequate response at all. And it seems important that when people are when the government is executing its duties uh, and its lawful constitutional uh, duties, that people have the ability to challenge that in some way, shape, or form. The FISA warrants that you're talking about, uh, so-called sneak and peek warrants in these national security letters, the ability to assert one's rights is muted. It is, although there was an amendment passed by Congress to uh, the national security letter provision that clarified the matter and now permits you to consult with your attorney. In fact, um, it also, uh, that amendment combined with a decision by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, make tra transfers the burden to the government to show why the gag order should be enforced. So if you receive a national security letter asking for, in the case of the libraries, for example, you know, the names of all the patron, patrons who uh, went online uh, through a particular uh, IP number on a certain date between certain times, uh, you could go to court and challenge the gag order. And then the court would ask the government to justify the gag order. And the government would have to show that there's a national security interest or that there's a life in danger or some other good reason. Those reasons are articulated in the Second Circuit opinion. And the Obama administration, which has not been good at all on civil liberties, at least on this one, did, decided not to appeal the Second Circuit's ruling and has applied it nationally. So it, 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 it has the force of law. But still, uh, it is incumbent on the recipient to mount the challenge. And as you say, it's very difficult to assert your rights uh, uh, because you're still under the gag order until it's lifted formally by the court. And, and that means you can't uh, advertise the fact, you can't talk to the press, you can't petition Congress, you can't, you know, you really can't function the way uh, an individual citizen would ordinarily, ordinarily function if you received, for example, a, a, a subpoena or, or were the target of a search warrant. Well, the only other thing I would say is a little bit of history. Um, there's a lot of concern, I think, that we're stuck in this situation, that because terrorism never ends, we're going to be forever uh, subjected to secret surveillance and extensive evasions of the Fourth Amendment by government, uh, especially because of technology. And that may be, but I think it's useful to look back at history. This period we're in uh, now, the post-9-11 period, is the sixth period, according to my count, in American history that we've deviated seriously from constitutional protections. The first was the Alien Sedition Acts under John Adams. Then came the suspension of habeas corpus and military arrests during the Civil War. Uh, around World War II, there was a Red Scare. Uh, there were arrests of uh, people who were supposedly pro-Bolshevik. 
who opposed American entry into World War One, who campaigned against the draft, all of those activities which really should have been protected by the First Amendment were causes of arrest and, and prosecution. Then you had World War II with the uh, internment of Japanese Americans uh, and the 1940 Smith Act, which outlawed uh, uh, advocacy of the violent overthrow of the government. But that was taken to mean just pure membership in communist or socialist parties. So just membership uh, was enough to get you prosecuted. And then you know there was the Cold War period during which uh, the FBI and other federal agencies did covert monitoring of anti-war and civil rights groups, including Martin Luther King Jr. And it was the exposure of that extensive domestic intelligence gathering by the church committee in the mid-70s that actually provoked uh, a backlash uh, in Congress and in the public and generated uh, a handful of privacy laws one of which was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, actually, passed in 1978 as an attempt to regulate intelligence gathering domestically, to make sure that the agencies had some judicial oversight. And those privacy laws in this post-9-11 period have been shot through full of holes. So it's very important to see that the history shows that we look back on each of these episodes, each of these previous five episodes with shame, actually, with outrage, with disgust. We, we don't look at them, by and large, as justified, these actions, by the government. So I'm hopeful that someday we will look back on this period with the same degree of regret. David Shipler is author of The Rights of the People. You can watch a forum for the book at Cato.org. 